IDRC CRDI When you think about global health challenges right now, I'm guessing that COVID-19 is right up there at the top of your list. The coronavirus has claimed the lives of more than a million people. A million confirmed cases worldwide. Now to another grim milestone, the world surpassing one million deaths from the coronavirus. The rapid global spread of the virus that causes COVID-19 has resulted in a pandemic that has already cost over a million lives. It has also galvanized an extraordinary global response to deal with it. Governments and private enterprises have directed billions of dollars to understanding the virus, mitigating its spread, developing treatments and vaccines, and dealing with the economic fallout. COVID is a lobster dropped into boiling water where it makes a lot of noise and everyone notices, and it's dead. But what if we're experiencing two pandemics right now? The emergence of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR for short, is a slow-motion pandemic that threatens to undermine modern medicine and return us to a time when simple infections could again be lethal. AMR is the lobster putting cold water slowly heating up so it doesn't make noise and people aren't noticing. I'm Evelyn Barricade. And I'm Justin Kemp, and this is Innovating Alternatives, a podcast about AMR and the researchers around the globe who are working to reduce it. How? By developing innovative alternatives to reduce and replace antimicrobial use in food animal production. Antimicrobial resistance. That's quite a mouthful. It is. Maybe we should break it down a bit. Sure, seems like a good a place as any to begin the story. A quick disclaimer to our listeners though, we'll have to go down the rabbit hole of bacterial biology on this, but bear with us, it's pretty fascinating and we'll be along with you for the ride. So it's all there in the name really. Microbial refers to microbes or microorganisms, a popular term for single-celled organisms that generally require a microscope to see them. Microbes are a broad group that includes not just the bacteria, but also the archaea, protists, and even some fungi. When we put the word anti in front of microbial, as in antimicrobial, it generally means bad things if you're a microbe. We are referring then to chemical agents that humans have harnessed to kill microorganisms or stop their growth. So antibiotics are a type of antimicrobial then? Yep, antibiotics are antimicrobials used to selectively kill or inhibit mainly bacteria within the body. Okay. Antimicrobials kill microorganisms, and antibiotics kill bacteria specifically, which are a type of microorganism. I'm with you so far. But uh, what about bleach? Would that be considered an antimicrobial too? Yes, that too. Bleach is a non-selective antimicrobial, a disinfectant that kills microbes on non-living surfaces. We're talking about scorched earth policy here. There's also another group, the antiseptics, which are applied topically to living tissue. Think of, say, the betadine wipes they clean your skin with before surgery. Alright, so that's the antimicrobial bit covered, but there's of course the other half, the resistance part. That's where the microbes magically develop superpowers and become resistant to the antimicrobials we're using against them, right? Right, kind of. So a lot of antibiotics are produced naturally by microorganisms. The penicillins, antibiotics our listeners uh, probably learnt about in science class, are produced by fungi in the genus Penicillium, hence the name. In fact, the term antibiotic used to be used only for these natural compounds. But over time, we've tweaked many of them to form semi-synthetic versions and even developed some fully synthetic types. They're generally all lumped together under the term antibiotic now. Digressions aside, microbes have been fighting it out between themselves for millions of years, using chemical warfare, producing antimicrobials to protect their own interests in a highly competitive environment. 
It's also this kind of environment that selects for bacteria that have some sort of defense or resistance against antimicrobials around them. So natural selection on a microscopic scale, yeah? Yeah, basically. So they've evolved a variety of ways to do this, but they tend to fall into two main groups. The first one involves stopping enough of the antibiotic for reaching its target in the first place. Like good old-fashioned siege warfare, where you try to keep the enemy out of your castle. Yeah, good analogy. So one way relies on decreasing the permeability of their castle, well, I mean their cell walls, essentially making sure all the doors and windows are tightly shut. Another involves having enzymes able to destroy the antibiotic, this is like shooting arrows at the attacking soldiers outside. They also have pump systems called efflux pumps, which remove antibiotics if they get into the cell. And they can even modify the antibiotic, preventing it from binding to its target in the bacterial cell. Got it. So bacteria can become resistant by having beefed up defenses, either strengthened cell walls or enzymes that can inactivate the antibiotics coming their way. Um, So that's approach number one. You mentioned there were two. I did. The other approach involves modifying or bypassing the target of the antibiotic. Modifying or bypassing the target. So to do that, they'd have to mutate then, or pull some kind of ninja stunts. Exactly. Mutations in the bacteria can lead to sufficient changes in the target that the antimicrobial can actually no longer bind to it. This is like kind of putting chewing gum in the door locks. Some bacteria can produce alternative proteins that replace the antimicrobial target, essentially changing the locks on the door. And finally, the bacteria sometimes produce an entirely new version of the structure being targeted. They literally just replace the entire front door. Sounds like the extent to which they mutate can vary quite a bit then. So if I've got this right, bacteria can become resistant to treatment by either armoring up or by shifting the goalposts, the transformer method. Uh, In short, yeah. So do we have an idea ahead of time of how a bacteria can become resistant to antibiotics? Like whether it's more likely to choose the armoring or the transformer method? Well, it doesn't actually get to choose. It either has it or it doesn't. The instructions for each of these mechanisms are encoded in the bacteria's DNA, its genome, as distinct genes. These are called antimicrobial resistant genes. Take the MEK-A gene in Staphylococcus aureus as an example. So here's how it works. An antibiotic will usually have a specific target in the bacterial cell that it attacks to kill or inhibit that bacteria. In the case of beta-lactam antibiotics such as penicillin, the target is a penicillin binding protein that the bacteria need for making its cell walls. Disable this protein and the bacteria can't make its cell wall, which is bad news if you're a bacteria. But say Staphylococcus aureus has an antimicrobial resistant gene MEK-A. Then it produces a different form of the penicillin-binding protein that has a low affinity to beta-lactam antibiotics, making these bacteria resistant. They just carry on with their business relatively unhindered. Sure, so the evolution of these mechanisms to evade antimicrobials is pretty much expected given the selective pressures of their environments. It's classic Darwinism. Yes, but things get a little bit quirkier. Keen to go a bit further down the rabbit hole? Well, we're already in this deep. Let's keep going. Okay, here we go. Last technical term. Horizontal gene transfer. Horizontal gene transfer? So normally genes would only be passed from one generation to the next during reproduction. Oh yeah, as in, what lovely blue eyes you have. Did you get them from your mother? Or in bacteria's case, you are really resistant to penicillin. Does it come from your father's side? But bacteria can also share genes between themselves, like both within the same species, but also between different species. Hence, horizontal gene transfer. Wait, wait, wait. So if I'm getting this right, bacteria can get together and just swap genetic material? Yeah, pretty much. It happens in several ways. Two bacteria can pair up and transfer DNA from one cell to another. So like, hey, I like your genes. Mind if I try them on? Sounds like a bacterial clothing swap or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it. Another way involves bacteriophages, the viruses that infect bacteria. So one thing bacteriophages can do is that they can bring along genes from previous bacteria that they've infected and introduce these into the DNA of their new bacterial host. Just like that? Yep. 
And finally, some bacteria can even take up free-floating DNA from around them and pick up resistant genes that way. So I guess the question should rather be, my, you're really resistant to penicillin. Did you get that from your father's side? Or your neighbor? Or your pet goldfish? Or did you just find it lying around on the pavement? <laughs> well, it sounds like being so open to new experiences and new genetic material is yet another way that bacteria have to outsmart us in our antibiotics. Yeah, so to sum it up, we have this invisible world of microorganisms all around us, and in us actually. And some are producing antimicrobials to try and get an edge, which is providing the selective pressure to develop mechanisms to resist those antimicrobials. It's a total arms race, but at a microscopic scale. Yeah, and this is a natural process that's been going on for millions of years. I'm starting to get why we should be concerned about antimicrobial resistance in general. But if it's been happening for millions of years, why should we be more concerned now? Well, it comes back to that selective pressure we were talking about. Take antibiotics as an example. Ever since humans first discovered antibiotics in the 1920s, our use of them has essentially started to turn up the volume on that selective pressure. Every time we use an antibiotic, we create the conditions that favor resistant bacteria over non-resistant types. Gotcha. So humans changing the environment and accelerating natural selection, essentially. That's exactly it. Over time, resistant strains have become more common in the bacterial population. Treating infection caused by resistant bacteria is becoming more complicated and more expensive. Sometimes we can switch to a different antibiotic or a combination of antibiotics, but we are now starting to see what are called multi-drug resistant bacteria, where treatment is extremely difficult or in some cases actually impossible. Ah yes, the dreaded so-called superbugs. To put this episode together, I spoke to one of the world's foremost experts on AMR to gain some insights. The current UK Special Envoy on AMR, Professor Dame Sally Davies, who also happens to be the co-convener of the UN Interagency Coordination Group on AMR and the former UK Chief Medical Officer. What a resume. So, what did you talk about? Well, I asked her what a post-antibiotic world would look like. Here's what she had to say. So, scratches will kill. The first case in the States who had penicillin was a young girl, a little girl, who had a, a scratch on her face and ended up with an infection that was closing her trachea so she couldn't breathe. She was going to die, and they gave her penicillin, and she lived. But modern medicine will be at risk. And modern, by modern medicine, I mean not just major surgery, whether it's new joints and cesarean sections, but for cancer and other things. But transplants will be at risk. Um, modern cancer treatments will, you know, they do drop your immunity. People get infections. At the moment, generally those are treatable, but they're becoming more and more difficult to treat, let alone the people who have chronic diseases and get more infections, particularly diabetes, those will be more difficult to treat. We will have deaths. We already see deaths, at least 33,000 a year here in Europe. Wow. The idea of a return to a time where scratches can kill is terrifying. Yeah, I actually looked that case up afterwards. We don't know the name of the girl who was admitted to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota back in 1943, actually after biting the inside of her mouth. But we do know that a doctor, W. Harrell, did not give a particularly uplifting assessment of his situation. In his words, An infection of this type, complicated by septicemia, is almost universally fatal. That's just you, isn't it? Well, maybe. But anyway, it only took 0.12 grams of penicillin, administered over 12 days, for her to recover. At the time, that kind of recovery must have seemed almost miraculous. But nowadays it's expected. Yeah, now times have changed. So at the end there, Dame Sally mentioned a figure of 33,000 deaths a year in Europe due to AMR. That's really significant. Actually, it's uh, likely just a small indication of what's coming down the line. A recent review on antimicrobial resistance commissioned by the UK government estimated that if AMR is left unaddressed, 
Globally, we could be losing 10 million lives annually by 2050 at a cumulative cost of 100 trillion US dollars. To put that number into perspective, we currently lose maybe 8 million people a year to cancer, and the COVID-19 pandemic death toll has only just crossed 1 million. And I'm guessing that, like most public health issues, the effects won't be felt evenly either? Yeah, we spoke about that too. Most of the direct and indirect impacts of AMR will fall on low- and middle-income countries, disproportionately affecting women and marginalized communities. Well, I think that in low-income countries, and many middle-income ones too, that is absolutely true. Women and marginalized communities are more at risk of getting infections. So I do think we've got to really look at the development issues and the gender equalities and think how to put in place through all our work protection for women and marginalized communities in order to get the best outcomes. Okay, so thought experiment here. If antibiotics are causing the problem, why don't we just ban or severely restrict their use? Unfortunately, it's not quite as simple as just stopping the use of all antibiotics. We've built large chunks of modern medicine on their use, so we really need to keep using them because otherwise procedures that rely on them will no longer be possible. And if we were to restrict them, then there's the whole issue of deciding who gets access to them and who doesn't. Even today, many people still don't benefit from proven antibiotic treatments for a range of ailments. So fair and affordable access to antibiotics is still actually a major issue, especially in many low-income countries. Sounds like that leaves us with only one option, really, to preserve the effectiveness of the ones we have. Exactly. It's really a Goldilocks situation we're aiming for. Not too little and not too much. Here's Dame Sally again on what she sees driving antibiotic overuse. I think a lot of overuse is not understanding what they actually do. So um, the demands from patients because, or parents because the child has a high temperature, clearly an infection. So why wouldn't you have antibiotics? But most children's infections are actually viruses that don't respond to antibiotics. So there's that demand. There's the demand in paid-for systems of, well, do something. There's the demand in systems where the hygiene isn't very good, so I'm thinking middle-income countries, yet they have access to everything, where they just load them in to try and prevent infection happening. And then the incentives are in the wrong place in many countries. So in many countries, doctors get paid for prescribing antibiotics and, again, for dispensing them. So that's the human side. Then when you go on to the rest of this One Health problem, which is the food chain, clearly more antibiotics are used in animals than in humans, and many of those are used for growth promotion or preventing infection. We can find better ways of doing that through research. But actually, you know, good biosecurity goes a long way to sorting that one out, but it costs to set it up and run it. So we've got to find better ways to do this. We've got to support not just health system development in low and middle income countries, but actually food chain development to make sure that this is effective for the people and they have their incomes from their work, but we are protected from developing more and more AMR. There's a lot to get into there. First of all, there's that psychological component. People know about antibiotics. They've probably seen their effectiveness on an infection in the past, so it makes sense that some people might demand them when they or their children fall sick. It's something that feels safe and effective, even if it might not always be. And then you have misaligned economic incentives that just feed into that and lead to overprescribing. And then there's antibiotics in animal production and in the food chain. 
Now, that's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Yeah, so in terms of just the pure volume of antimicrobials used, food animal production is an area of major concern for AMR emergence, especially given how these antibiotics are often used. So I'm like talking about growth promotion, prophylaxis, where repeated exposure to low doses of antimicrobials provides ideal conditions for the emergence of resistant bacteria. Right. Humans creating environments that favor the survival of resistant bacteria. This is sounding oddly familiar. Yep, antimicrobial use has become ingrained in many intensive food production systems, acting as a kind of crutch that allows for increased efficiency or cost reduction, despite less than ideal animal husbandry conditions. It's an area that needs extensive research investment if we're going to clearly understand the threat of AMR from these systems, and how to chart a new course that doesn't lean on antimicrobials as heavily. And where should we be directing that research? Well, there are two parts to this. The first is, we're not absolutely sure how that plays in and harms humans. We have case studies of transfer of AMR from the food sector, from the environment and and water to humans and the damage. But how big a role is it playing? Second, we don't know the best way to farm animals um, and we need to find better ways. Can we keep them safe from infection? Can we get growth promotion using other methods? And, you know, every time I pick up a stone on AMR, I find another problem. We've discovered crops are being sprayed or injected with antibiotics. Are there different, or antifungals, are there different ways of doing that? So we need to do that. We need to understand the behaviours and how to work with people so that they trust their advice. And that's behavioural sciences. A lot of research there. We need new diagnostics. And we really need cheap point-of-care diagnostics. That needs research. And of course, we're not going to get new antibiotics or alternatives that we desperately need without research. And that's at the basic level about the infectious organisms and how they work, therefore finding targets, let alone once you've found a target, working to find if it's druggable and how you do it and then the safety of that and the effectiveness. And it's very difficult. One of my colleagues in the drug development field once explained to me that for many conditions, the medicines we as humans take can be in very low levels. So harm, you know, is not so much of an issue. But for antibiotics, we have to have very high levels in the plasma, in the blood. And that's why safety becomes much more difficult. So that antibiotics have a higher failure rate in the clinical phases than many other drugs. And we've got to really work at all of that. And that means joint working between universities and the scientists with the private sector and supported by the public. So it's obvious that not only is there a lot to do on the research front, but you also begin to see just how important preserving the effectiveness of existing antibiotics is, given the difficulties involved with developing new ones. Well, I'm guessing one way to target research efforts would be to focus on animal production sectors that traditionally are associated with high antibiotic use. For sure, and to a degree there are clues right on the supermarket shelves as to what sectors those might be. Oh yeah? How so? Well, it's unlikely that producers are going to label their products with slogans like produced using only the best quality antibiotics or from our antibiotic rich farm to you. But what you do see are some producers making a point of distinguishing themselves as antibiotic free or farmed without the use of antibiotics. The very fact that these producers exist and strongly market their non-use of antibiotics suggests that they are different from the norm 
You see this commonly in intensively farmed food animal sectors like swine and poultry. Okay, so if intensive production is commonly associated with antibiotic misuse, what other sectors might fit this bill? Well, aquaculture has been the fastest growing food production sector for at least the last two decades, with growing intensification as farmers move from small scale to medium scale production and even beyond. But we actually hear very little about AMR in this sector, despite this rapid intensification. Did you ask Dame Sally whether we should be concerned with the issue of AMR in aquaculture? I did. Well, I'm very worried, so I suggest you should be. Why? Well, um, over the world, masses of antibiotics have just poured in with fish feed into the water of um, aquaculture, whether it's for fish or shellfish. And this is really, really scary because not only does it promote the development of resistance, after all, the development of resistance in bugs is um, the origin of the species. It is natural selection. But it will then go with the wastewater out into our water systems. And I worry about discharge from manufacturing of uh, anti-infectives, antibiotics and others, and discharge into the environment. I worry about discharge high-use hospitals and from high-use farms into the waterways. But aquaculture is definitely one way. And, you know, we probably don't need all this. Because if you look at what they've done in salmon farming in um, Scotland and Norway, they've worked out what are the bugs, and it's a, a lot of it's about a fungus, but a bacteria too. And they've made a vaccine mixture of three vaccines, and they give all the tiny fish vaccine individually. One Norwegian company has shown me pictures of how they've automated it with robots, and they just prick each fish, so it's easy. And once you've invested, it must be cheap. And they hardly use antibiotics at all. Hey, bring it on. We need to do that more. That's all good. Successful, large-scale vaccination of fish in industries where there's a high-value product, like salmon, and where global consumers demand an antibiotic-free product. But how do we replicate these successes in industries with a lot of small-scale producers farming low-value products, mainly for domestic consumption? Well, I think it is more difficult. But, you know, you don't just have to give vaccinations by pricks. We all know about um, the flu vaccination for children, which is intranasal. They're talking about COVID vaccination intranasally. There's other vaccines that uh, are done orally, some of the polio ones. So I would still argue we need to look at vaccines, but think, does it have to be done by injection or are there other ways that we can do it cheaply? And of course, the more you make, the cheaper it becomes. So there will be other ways of doing this. So we've gone from discussing how microorganisms adapt to become resistant to treatment, all the way to fish vaccines. This has been quite the overview. We've definitely covered a lot of ground, but really we're only just scratching the surface. Well then, for the sake of completion, one thing we haven't really touched upon is governance. And what I mean by that is, what are governments around the world doing about this? Do we have a solid plan or... Are we just sitting back and letting antibiotics become less and less effective with no plan B? That was something I was really looking forward to speaking to Dame Sally about, given her experience working with intergovernmental organizations on the issue. I asked her to give a bit of an overview of what the global public response has looked like so far. Well, we started well in 2016. We went to the UN General Assembly and all countries signed up to the Global Action Plan to working through all their sectors on this And we've made quite a lot of progress and we can talk about national action plans. But that set up 
through the director, uh, through the secretary general of the UN, an interagency coordination group. And I was honored to be one of the co-conveners. We reported after two years' work last April um, with 14 main governance recommendations and a lot of other ones. And these need to be put into action. The important ones, things like the global leaders group to keep an eye on coordination and what's going and to advocate the um, equivalent of the IPCC, um, an independent panel for evidence. So it's brought together and thought about. And importantly, a partnership platform bringing together all the different sectors, because this isn't just a technocratic issue. It impacts on civil society and their behaviors impact on it. Meanwhile, the private sector hold most of the solutions and the opportunities. So we need to all come together. And this is difficult, but we have to make a start and learn from how we do it. Wow, the big push only started in 2016? It sounds like we still have quite a long way to go. Yes, but as you mentioned, there are significant partnership platforms in place working on this issue. And that's really important groundwork to make any kind of large-scale change. I like the optimism. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, though. We are in the midst of a global pandemic. Do we know what effect COVID-19 is having on combating antimicrobial resistance? You know, we couldn't have an online interview without talking about COVID-19 these days. Dame Sally did talk a bit about the lost momentum, but I'll let her explain in her own words. I think we had very good momentum. Uh, It was falling off a bit and COVID is center stage. But what we keep trying to explain to people is that there's a slow-growing pandemic. It's AMR. And all the issues we're learning from COVID hold true for this slow-growing one. So, you know, we need collaboration. We need science. We need money. It's cheaper to prevent than to take action when it's happened. And we really need to recover that momentum. And health security and COVID give us an opportunity for that. I've been talking about a a metaphor of a lobster. So COVID is a lobster dropped into boiling water where it makes a lot of noise and everyone notices and it's dead. AMR is the lobster put in cold water, slowly heating up so it doesn't make noise and people aren't noticing. We need to get it out before it's dead, before it really gets to be bad. There it is, the famous lobster metaphor. I remember you telling me about it after your interview. Yes, it's actually quite a powerful one. It frames AMR in the language of an epidemic, language that we're actually all very familiar with these days. I think the takeaway here is that because of COVID-19, everyone has a much bigger sense of the importance of strong, coordinated public health approaches. So COVID-19 is a harbinger of the future, not only what it looks like when you can't treat a disease, but how infections brook no borders, if they move globally, and how the solutions are come from collaboration and global collaboration. Yeah, hopefully it's also taught us that a good dose of prevention beats scrambling to find cures and treatment in the midst of a crisis. And lucky for us, unlike COVID, this is a crisis that we can see coming, so there's still time to do something about it. I asked Dame Sally if she could mandate every government in the world to take one action on AMR, what would it be? Put into action your national action plan. That could make a big difference. At the moment, the countries that have them, only a small number have got them funded, and most of them are not putting it into action. If they put them into action, the world will be different. We'll need more. 
We'll need research and other things. But that would be a great start. So what does that look like, concretely, to put national plans into action? Well, it would mean taking the targets and objectives laid out in the action plans, getting funding behind them, and putting in place monitoring and evaluation processes to see how things are going. Well, I think we can leave it there then. That's your takeaway, folks. But before we go, a quick sneak preview of our next episode. Sure. On the next episode, we dig into the wonderful world of bacteriophages, the tiny viruses that are the natural enemy of bacteria and the most abundant organisms on Earth. And we talk to researchers who are developing phage therapies to replace antibiotics in poultry farming. It's a very glamorous process that starts at a wastewater treatment facility. Sounds charming. For everyone wanting to learn more about the podcast, read the transcript, or get in touch, visit us on the podcast's homepage linked in the show notes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, and thanks for listening. This episode of Innovating Alternatives was hosted by me. And me. And produced by me. And written by me. Music selection by me. Soundscape by me. It's just the two of us, isn't it? Sure is. Yeah.